At the time, brokerages in this country were able to charge quite a bit for trading. And for the most part in the US, and I think in a lot of Europe, trading is essentially free now. It's not even a commodity. It's a lost leader for the brokers. The US market has never been more concentrated in a single industry or in a single small set of companies. So I would love to see those inflection points because at this point, you almost see a greater level of conservatism uh, than you had even before the pandemic started. Well, I just want to give a quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Uh, I used to think of Vodafone Business as only a reliable provider of mobile and broadband needs, but they're really stepping up to help Irish businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world. So they now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. More recently, Vodafone have launched their VHub digital advisory service. With its new service, Irish businesses of all sizes can get free one-to-one digital support and advice tailored to their business by simply booking a call with one of the VHub digital experts on the Vodafone business website. Search Vodafone VHub for more information. Hello, everyone. I'd like to take one minute to tell you about a brand new My Wall Street service called Nexus and to invite you to register your interest so you can be the first to hear about it when it launches in November. As you know, AI is changing all businesses and those who do not embrace it risk being left behind. The product we've created fuses state-of-the-art AI, advanced filtering, and the intelligence of master investors for short, actionable insights. There are over 58,000 listed companies on 60 exchanges around the world from which just a handful will grow 100-fold or more. Just one is required to change your life. Nexus is built to find it. Had it existed at the time, Nexus would have pinpointed stocks like Monster, Sleep Number, and Biospecifics, all ahead of a minimum 100-fold growth. This is a low-volume product for serious long-term investors. Register now via the link in the show notes or visit mywallstreet.com forward slash Nexus to express your interest. Hello, hello. Welcome, uh, Emmett. We have a very special guest with us today on this episode of Stock Club. Uh, would you like to introduce him in all his glory? Oh, I certainly would. Thanks, Mike. Well, Bill, man, it's a thrill to have you on Stock Club. Simply put, you're one of a handful of voices who's inspired an entire generation of individual investors. And I asked you to join us here today. Well, apart from being an old friend of mine and, and a guiding light of my own, but because you're joining us on the evening of Friday, 17th of November, just four weeks from today, um, both you and your former Motley Fool Money co-host Chris Hill are flying to Dublin to join us for our annual Horizon Members event in the Westbury Hotel. And the theme of the evening will be focused on finding outstanding investments for 2024 and beyond. Um, I'll say a little more about that at the end of the show, but I thought I better put it up at the top because people are basically impatient and stop listening. So folks, just click on the link in the show notes right now to secure a ticket. Bill, you're very welcome. You know, if you compliment me like that some more, I will. I, I, I would fly to Mars. Like, <laughs> yes, smooth, you might talker. actually turn up. <laughs> I might actually turn up. <laughs> yeah, we were uh, we we were joking beforehand. It's my 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 old pal Chris Hill, who I've known since uh, since I started at the Motley Fool in 1999, and he had started here in 1998. And yeah, we're 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 gonna be in Dublin for a couple of days unsupervised. So, so oh, yeah. uh... <laughs> off the hook. Well, I tell you, we're going to interview Chris next week. So it's going to be like one of these, uh, is it a Spanish interrogation? What is it when you, oh, the prisoner's Spanish dilemma. Spanish, yeah. no, no, the prisoner's dilemma. We're going to ask you, so what, what are you going to do uh, when you're in Dublin? We're going to ask Chris and see what he said. <laughs> I want to see the book of Cal's, like <laughs> the usual, of course, usual. Such, yeah, good yeah. guys. Look, Bill, instead of me riffing, uh, which I'm going to do a lot of on this podcast. Allow me to read your bio for our listeners. I'm sure there's just a handful who don't know who you are. Bill Mann has worked with The Motley Fool for almost 25 years, where he's currently the director of small cap research. He has held several leadership roles in the business, including the CIO of Motley Fool Asset Management. In addition to his lead analyst role, Bill is host of the daily Motley Fool morning show. He's frequently appeared on CNBC, 
Bloomberg, Fox, CN, CNN, BBC, CBS, more or less anything that has a screen, Bill's been on it. And such is his expertise in corporate governance that he was asked by a US Senate committee to testify as an expert witness at a hearing regarding the collapse of Enron. And since then, he's interviewed endless entrepreneurs and founders to understand what makes a great leader and the best long-term stock investments. Don't forget to ask Bill for 50 signed photos of him smiling so we can sell it on our website. I, I don't know if I was meant to read that bit. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah. so it's, Bill, what you have know, you not done? Do you know about the time of me freezing on CNBC? Oh, yeah. I've watched it yeah. a few times. I've shown my family, actually. <laughs> I couldn't remember the word reserves. We were being asked about mining companies and I'm, I'm walking my way into a sentence and I know I can't remember the word reserves. So I'm trying to talk my way around it and come up with a different way of describing the same exact thing. And it's not happening. And I get to the spot and I just freeze. And it is so bad that the host of CNBC, it was Liz Clayman at the time goes, it's okay, Bill. Uh, on live television, <laughs> on live television, and oh, Chris Hill at the time, who was you know who, who who was our media expert afterwards. I mean, basically, it's a media expert's job afterwards to be like, "That was great. Maybe next time, try this." And after that, was I finished, he goes, "That could have been better." <laughs> <laughs> Devastating. <laughs> well, you know, it's the only way is up. Hey, look now, and what, where did it bring you to five hours of podcasting a week? That's right. And certainly better. Where I can one. routinely forget words and pause. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? We love you just the way you are. Yeah. Uh, Bill, now, <laughs> just as we're talking about being put on the spot, I want to put you on the spot a small bit because I was doing some recce on you before the show. And actually found your Enron testimony that we mentioned in the intro. So there's one particular bit I took out that I'd like you to kind of expand on. It says, in the end, analysts from large bro broker firms have minimal structural incentive to be accurate in their predictions. Rather, their built-in incentive is to be as favorable to the corporate clients as possible. Given like 20-something years that has passed since then, do you believe that this landscape has evolved since then or are things broadly the same? I think it's worse. Yeah. I think it's, I, if you, so at the time, so that was the end of 2001 at the time, uh, brokerages in this country, in this country were able to charge quite a bit, you know, for, for trading and for the most part in the U S and I think in a lot of Europe, trading is essentially free. Now it is, uh, it's not even a commodity. It's, you know, it's a loss leader for, you know, for, for, the brokers. And so you have these investment banks, how do they get paid? They get paid based on companies doing secondary offerings and debt offerings and mergers and acquisitions. They have no incentive at all to come out and say, hey, I don't think this company is doing great because essentially that means, well, okay, we're not going to consider this bank for our next offering. So Brokerage in this country, in this country at least, and the United States, uh, you know, we are kind of all about us. Uh, but it is the largest market by market cap in the world. It's about forty-four percent of the total world market cap. So that it is a meaningful market for every single company and every single uh, investment bank. So I don't think it's gotten better at all. The the only thing that I would say is because of the way that brokerage has changed, you know, has changed, that there's been kind of become less and less of an incentive for the sell side analysts to even cover smaller companies, which is, mm -hmm. which is somewhat beneficial to you know to us if you are someone who fishes in the small cap waters. So they are at best ignored. Mm. At best ignored. I like that. So this is why you see all the price targets chasing the actual stock price and why. Everyone is bullish on NVIDIA six, seven months after the rally rather than before it. I wish I could find this. Uh, I, I wish I could find this graph again, but someone, uh, I, someone, I want to say it was Kalosh Concepts put, put together a, a price chart of, uh, of Tesla through 2020 and 2021. And then, you know, and, and on a time series, they just did the price targets 
of all of the big analysts. And it was unbelievable watching it follow in lockstep yeah. the price itself. So they weren't out ahead. That you know there was there there you know it, you know you know the old phrase there's there there are you know uh, you know there are no atheists in a foxhole there are no atheists mm. on Wall Street either I mean you know the the company sh shows you what it is through its price action and they will follow but I don't know why you're getting paid for telling us what the stock has already done. Mm. Mm. It's a fact. I mean, you you worked, as far as I recall, in your early days, Bill, looking for small cap investments on a, a newsletter since retired, I expect, called Hidden Gems. And yeah. you spent, I don't know how many years looking for those stocks that were underfollowed, underappreciated, misunderstood. But broadly, there was no opinion out there on them. And there was some absolutely incredible businesses to be found. Um, yeah. Are you still, I mean, predominantly, a like if you were to describe your investment style, um, what would you say is your core philosophy or better still, what would you say is your investment style if you could only say it in a tweet? Uh, I have a metal detector. I'm looking for <laughs> things. I'm looking to, to, for things that are unseen by, by the market. And mm. I guess mm. the good news is even in as, as highly of an observed market as United States market is, and I always describe our market as being highly efficient, but it's not the same thing as being fully efficient. So there are huge parts of the market and think about what we were just talking about. The fact that Wall Street analysts, it's not really worthwhile for them to track at all or put put ratings at all out on companies that are $5 billion and smaller mm -hmm. from, a, you know, in a market cap perspective. So they are out there and I would say, if anything, at that end of the market in the United States, things have become even less efficient over time, mm -hmm. which which is great for for people like me who who try and fish in those waters. Wait, mm -hmm. you asked me to say that very briefly, and I went on. <laughs> Don't worry, you can do long tweets now. You know, I, you can't even do a tweet. Well, that's right. That's what I got to go and get the blue star and write as long a tweet as I want. Just would uh, you touch? Just, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, just on the small cap investing uh, with so much experience in it, do you notice like an inflection point where the institutional money comes in? Is there is there that tipping point that you achieve? And it's like, that's that's the money shot, basically. Yeah, it happens. I mean, it, it, we just talked about Tesla earlier and, and Tesla is now as close to a trillion dollar company. So there are no, by no definition, is it a small cap? Uh, but there were companies like Chipotle, for example, that just simply won for years and years and years and years. And you really do see, uh, you know, the, the, um, the investment banks start to get interested in companies after they have won for a while, even, even if they are smaller. One of the challenges in the U.S. right now, so so the S&P 500 has had a pretty good year, but the S&P 493, which is the <laughs> S&P 500 minus the big seven tech stocks, has not had a good year. So no. if anything in this country, you have been punished for moving away from any big cap tech, tech companies here. So it's almost the opposite of an inflection point right now. Like it, the, the US market has never been more concentrated in a single industry or in a single small set of companies. So I would love to see those inflection points because at this point you almost see a, you know, a, a greater level of conservatism uh, than mm. you had even before the pandemic started. You touch on a couple of interesting points there. First, you mentioned number of $5 billion. And I was about to ask you, like, what in your mind now constitutes a small cap? Because when I started, it was, I think, a business capitalized between 100 million and maybe 250 million. And then it grew yeah. up a bit. You now, now we're talking about, are, you, are we thinking about companies below 5 billion? I think that's a pretty good acid test. The way I used to think about it is any company that was in the Russell 2000. Mm. And so yeah. the U.S. has, you know, there are every country has a number of indices and the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ and the Dow Jones Industrial Average are, the, are pretty much the large cap uh, indices. The Russell 2000 
is the lower two thirds of the Russell 3000. So the Russell 1000 is kind of their 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 version of the S&P 500, only twice the, as many companies. Um, so the Russell 2000, very top of that, starts at about at about five and a half billion dollars uh, mm-hmm. now, and so that's pretty much where I would where where I would consider small cap there and below. Uh, to me, the market cap almost isn't even the most interesting part because what you have in this country now is is huge swaths of the market that are just ignored. So mm-hmm. there are companies that are 20 and $30 billion in size now that are pretty much ignored by, uh, b- by the investment banks. And so they behave like what you would think a small cap is because of, you know, be, because they have, they do no fundraising activity. They, they aren't in any danger of doing secondaries or raising debt. So to me, the number itself almost is less important than the uh, the profile of the company on Wall Street. Mm. But while the number isn't important, at what point is it just too small for your taste? What what is a nano cap in your mind, or rather, where, where do you say no, too small? Well, so for 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 my taste. I would mm. I would invest in most anything. The practical the, the the practical matter of being someone who is a public stock picker is that uh, is that you can't really observe something without changing the nature of it. And the smaller it is, I mean, if mm. you tell fifty people about a five million dollar market cap company, you're going to light that company on fire. And I always say that uh, we have no interest in ringing the dinner bell at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yes, so I was about to say, you're totally <laughs> in there with <laughs> Right? Y'all want to have some fun? <laughs> like, that is, that is the analyst form of playing with fireworks after a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, so... Um, we have we have recommended and i am comfortable with companies that are that are sub 100 million dollar market caps but whenever we release something like that we've done it a couple of times we are very very clear uh you know almost like a you know a a a a black label at the top of the top of the page saying hey if you mess around with this you are going to get a price that is very different from the one that we are telling you it is right now. It's mm-hmm. just going to happen. Use yeah. limit orders, wait a couple of days, do not try to be first mm-hmm. to buy this company. And does it work? Ish, you know, like mm-hmm. I, you know, there, there are a lot of people who just, you know, who just say, Hey man, just give me those, just give me that ticker. And I don't, I don't know how you go about saving them from themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, I, I, I don't, I, I think so differently, you know, in terms of why it is that, you know, I might buy a company that the ticker is far from, you know, sufficient for me, but it is how some people do. But it, it, because of that, I would say about a hundred, a hundred million is, is, is the floor. Okay, gotcha. That's smaller than I thought. And I think you and Mike and I, we've all observed the pop where you open your mouth, you point out something that isn't followed very well, and then suddenly the price just jumps and you have, there's a correlation between your word and its share price. And invariably within three days, it settles back where those who got in decided they've changed think, their mind. I think you're overestimating, overestimating my influence there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I oh, follow no, the categories. Yeah. That's you, no, no, no. You're underselling yourself. You want to feel powerful? Uh, find a five million dollar market cap company and try that one. I mean, you're, <laughs> you, like you'll feel like Zeus. Like, well, yeah. Well, this is the guy, Mike. Mike writes and edits a, a weekly email we have here called "Charging and Fearless," which is named after the charging bull and fearless girl statues on Wall Street, and yeah. its purpose is to find great stock investments irrespective of where they're listed so you mentioned that america is by far the biggest the best and the most efficient capital market system in the world but there are a lot of other countries out there there's probably 60 other company or countries rather that are i think fair game to have a close look at Mm -hmm. Um, many moons ago bill i remember you were director of what to this day remains is one of my favorite investment services and it's the now retired global gains where you went searching for great investment opportunities 
all over the world. And the only criterion was that they needed to have some form of listed entity in the US. Having traveled the world back in the day for global games, I think you went to China, you went to mm. Brazil, you went a lot right. of nice places on I kind of junk it, I have to say. But ah, it sounds like a boondoggle. I also went to Nigeria <laughs> and Saudi though. So I remember that. <laughs> you recommended Guinness. You recommended Guinness in Nigeria. Guinness, Guinness uh -huh, Nigeria. As far as I call. Uh, so what countries outside of the US attract you today? So uh, I, I'll give you a developed market and then a developing market. My, my, my favorite developed market outside of, of, of the U.S. is actually Sweden. Stop. And yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. they uh, the Swedish market is very interesting because it is I mean, it is incredibly well regulated. I mean, that is I mean, that's 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 simply the case. You go across the board in the Nordic countries. I also culturally think that it almost doesn't need to be as well regulated as it is. The Nordic, the, there is something about the Nordic countries and the ethos there. They don't pay their, their executives uh, exorbitant amounts of money. They don't have these crazy stock options uh, plans where even if you identify a company correctly, you know, most of the gain ends up accruing to the insiders rather than outside in investors. But there's also in Sweden a tendency to look outside of the country because Sweden is, you know, it, it's 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 a rather small market. So you have fantastic companies that are based in Sweden that have footprints well outside of the country. And so mm. to me, that That's is about... one of the most interesting. Yeah. Lots of cereal acquirers as well, isn't that kind of lots of cereal? Yeah, lots of cereal uh, cereal acquirers. Uh, you know, Inditrade is one. There, there are a bunch of them, and they are cereal acquirers in the model of Berkshire Hathaway, in that they very much focus on that redeployment of capital first and foremost. And again. Like, I think that there's no more powerful substance on this earth than incentive. And so, unfortunately, with most acquirer companies, the thing that correlates the most with, with the acquisition and the increase in market cap is how much the executives get paid and how much they, you know, how much they earn. And it turns out that if you tell someone, if you, if you do this thing, you're going to get paid more. They're going to convince themselves that this is a really good, really smart thing to do, whether it is good or smart for anybody else. And that's that's not being cynical. That's just reality. So mm -hmm. uh, in, in in Sweden, because executive compensation does not seem to be correlated so much with the market cap of a company, I think you end up with smarter outcomes. Mm -hmm. No question about it. John, JT and I went up to Sweden a few years ago to visit the First North Exchange, which, as you know, is owned by the Nasdaq. And we yeah. were considering it for an alternative listing for my Wall Street. And we, I was really taken aback at how incredible the cal caliber of companies are on that exchange. It is just it's a landscape of wonderful businesses, very capital efficient uh, names that we know, names that seem familiar. And then those that are never heard of that are just literally printing money. I am a huge fan as well. Um, and I love ABBA and I love Absolute Vodka. So, I mean, right. and Volvo, you know, there's so many things to love. So. Yeah. And very, Emmett, I'll just put in very appropriate for a new project coming up as well. Isn't that right? Yes, yes, it is. So we, we've been working on a product for the longest time uh, and we're calling the product Nexus, which is fusing AI with state-of-the-art screening. And we're using hedge fund data from more or less every exchange in the world. And I say more or less because we excluded some because the reporting was so horrible. Mm -hmm. And we've been tweaking, feeding and, and training an AI system for about two and a half years. And certainly the voting machine is starting to look pretty good. I mean, only six months ago, it looked like the Bride of Frankenstein, but the names and the analysis it's producing now on its own is definitely giving us goosebumps. And, and Sweden is top of the pile. It's top of the pile, and there's no question about it. And the returns have been there as well. I mean, Sweden accounts for you know 0.05% of the number of listed companies in the world. And I know number of listed companies is kind of a bizarre way to, to frame, but it is these it, it over the last 
20 years, there are only five countries that have had more 10 baggers than, than Sweden has had. So wow. the proof is in the pudding there. It actually pays off. And, and I'm not sure that investors are well served going out and looking for, for 10 baggers. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty high risk way to invest. It's, you know, you end up with a lot of 0.1 baggers, but if you're going to do it, uh, you know, a country where they get there by just simply growing, you know, si 14, 15% year in and year out, which is what happens with these Swedish companies that are serial acquirers that are good capital allocators is maybe the safest way to do it. Mm -hmm. As far as I recall, the Swedish um, population are highly incentivized to invest, I think some like 20% of their salary in indigenous and, and home listed companies. I can't yeah. quite recall what the tax break is, but it really has created an ecosystem which favors individual investors, retail investors, and promotes businesses to behave extremely well because the entire nation's pension is pinned to the performance of these businesses. And it's kind of self-cleansing. It is self-cleansing. And if you think about the old adage about Sweden, it was what, 12 million people in nine last names, right? Like if, if everyone <laughs> around you is invested in your company, like you are looking at people every single day who depend on you. Bill, right? you have no idea how well I can relate to that comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Who told you to say that? Everybody, basically. <laughs> Oh man, I, I like I, I as in, for anyone who makes stock recommendations publicly, if you don't feel that type of thing in your soul, you are in the wrong business, right? Oh, yeah. I feel in my soul, and and we understand as investors that you're going to be right if you're right fifty one percent of the time, you've probably crushed it. That's just how it goes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. whenever you whenever you put an investment out there, you are putting it out based on what has happened in the past. And then from that point, what you believe will happen in the future. Some companies are more predictable than others, but the more predictable a company is, the less efficient it's going to be. Right. Yeah, that's just sure. you know, that. Yeah, that's reality. Um, yeah. And on top of that, it only takes a couple of outsized winners to boost your performance, to boost your CAGR, to boost your reputation. I mean, I've had two 100 baggers, and one of them is thanks to you, I might add. Um, so, you know, beer's on me. Um, so you mentioned... <laughs> Beer? Um, Come on, man! <laughs> I didn't say how much. <laughs> a lot of beer, brewery. Um, so you mentioned there was another market. You said Sweden has a first world market and then another yes, that has you interested. What's the other? Mexico. Really? Not going to believe it. Yeah. So Mexico actually has a very highly developed regulatory system, much higher than you, than, than you might think. And Mexico, I, I, it will be a long time thing happening, but after COVID, and at the point in time, so let's take a company like Procter & Gamble. During the beginning of COVID, they have 27,000 products, 17,000 of which were dependent on at least one ingredient coming solely from China, right? So wow. we can talk about China as, you know, as friend or foe, you know, in, in, in the US. I don't think that matters quite as much as the fact that one of the things that the pandemic taught American companies was that they were highly dependent on a single source. And that is something that is a weak point in their supply chain. So forgetting any other, pan, you know, forgetting any other like geopolitical discussion, how do you solve that? You solve that by broadening your markets. You solve that for broadening your sources. And so you know, we're calling it reshoring here in the US. We're calling it, you know, a bunch of different things. One of the countries that's you know, right nearby that has an incredible infrastructure is Mexico. And so mm. you're seeing a huge amount of American companies that are moving or at least doubling down on the infrastructure that they have now, the supply chain that they have now in China and a lot of other markets. And Mexico is kind of at the top of the list. So I think that this is a story that you're gonna see play out, not over, it's not a 2023, 2024 story. This is a 2035 story. 
So that to me is the other country that is incredibly interesting for investors. That is fascinating. Would I be right in saying about 20 years ago, you recommended buying shares in the National Airport of Mexico? One of them, I sure did. Yeah, that was, them, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and what by an the idea. way, yeah, they're still out there and they are still minting money. And every time a new airport opens in Mexico, they end up ending up in it's three different companies. And I don't even think you have to choose, right? Like wow. it's, you know, uh, one is a, you know, one's on the West coast, one's the center. And then one is the, the East coast. So what do you want? Acapulco or Cancun, or do you want Monterey where everything is being produced? So the Mexican airports have done so well that they've gone out and bought Colombian airports. They own the airport in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Like these, these companies have done great. And I think they're going to continue to do so particularly because from a logistical standpoint, there is almost no better place to, you know, to, to go for American companies. Uh, have you got a top three favorites? Sorry, Mike, I just want to keep on this Mexico thing. It, hit us with three names. You don't need to go deep, but just three names. Well, so, so we, we can talk about the three airports for, you know, for example, yeah. one, I'm not going to say them in Spanish because they have, they have not bothered. <laughs> they have not bothered to give themselves shortened Americanized names, which I kind of appreciate, but it's hard when you have to say them out loud when I studied German. So my Spanish is funny. Um, <laughs> one is one, one is PAC, P-A-C. It's the Pacific yes, area. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, OMAB is central Mexico, which is, uh, you know, again, Monterey and, and the Southeast, you know, Cancun Cozumel is, uh, is ACER, A-S-U-R. So nice. Yeah, that's it. Tollgate businesses, they're just going to keep collecting for the rest of time. Yeah, and 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 they've done a really nice job. So they they've done a really nice job. So the obviously the government or some local transit authority owns the airport and so what they have is the concession to run it. So all they really need to do is make sure that they run it in a way that the that that the government says, "Hey, we're doing so well, we're just going to keep renewing. There's no reason for us to uh there's no reason for us to uh, to look around and, and and change jockeys because these companies have just done a great mm. job. Bill, I'm going to kind of flip the script from Mexican airports back to tech companies. You mentioned them, <laughs> the dominance of the current market now and the, how top heavy it's become. But mm -hmm. you could say for the last 15 years, they've really dominated and lifted the stock market as a whole. So how do you evaluate tech stocks and especially the kind of story stocks so like highly relevant but maybe with the lack of profitability or a lack of history so far so so i let me say at the top that my my long-term track record at being wrong about story stocks is almost unbroken <laughs> like i interviewed elon musk in these offices in 2012 and i bought tesla and it doubled in 2013. i was like well that's about as good as it's gonna get guess <laughs> what <laughs> there have been very brief periods of time in the intervening decade in which i felt smart but they have not been very long um so I think one of the most important things, you know, to to understand about about tech stocks, as far as I evaluate them, now that I've you know kind of crapped all over my capacity to do so, is um, is I think so many people get wrapped up in looking for companies with super high growth rates, and they forget that the the incredibly successful companies are the ones that grow for such a long period of time that if you were to go into day one of your MBA program and, and produce, you know, a, a cash, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a, um, a discounted cash flow for these companies, the, the professor would fail you, yeah. you know? So like, that's the magic of Apple. It's not that it's grown 40% a year. It's that it's grown 13% for 30 years in a row. Mm -hmm. And right. brought back. That's, Half right. a trillion worth of stock as well. That but exactly, no, exactly right. So, so when you think about it, you know, when you when when you think about a discounted cash flow statement, you've got like the five years that you can predict or the ten years that you can predict, and what you put on the end is that you know is is the terminal growth rate. What kinds of companies? And this is not easy, right? 
uh, what kinds of companies are going to break that terminal growth rate? And mm -hmm. to me, uh, in, in tech, what you have to look for are unbounded companies that have something that, that I call the capacity to suffer, that if, if they disappeared would be screamingly pay, painful for any, for the companies that they supply. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the, the, those are it. So I am not particularly interested in companies that are growing at 70% and have really light capital models, because what I see in a company like that is a company that can be disrupted really easily because they're in the process of disrupting, disrupting something else. And if it doesn't, if it didn't make much, take much capital to create this company, it's not going to take that much capital to create the one that disrupts it. Mm, mm. So if you think about an Apple, for example, and hey, let's, you know, let, let, let's, let, let's get on a podcast and talk about how smart we are for, for saying nice things about Apple. Apple is a capital intensive business. Amazon is a capital intensive business. So, so someone who is in a garage right now trying to think of what big company they, they can disrupt, these two are non-starters, right? So I actually look for, you know, for companies that tend to have, I guess what you would call lower, less sexy economics uh, than, you know, than where a lot of people might immediately focus on. Mm -hmm. Which I suppose brings it brings me back to the stock you mentioned at the top of the cast was which is Chipotle, which you I think honed in on 15, 16 years ago, uh, which is when I invested. Um, what do you see anything out there today that reminds you of Chipotle way back in two thousand and six? That it just has it resonates. You go, you know what? I I see these traits. I I remember it was Steve Ells, passionate founding, mm. qualified chef who was very kind of authentic on the mic and a, a customer promise that we could all connect with. Is there anything out there that you go, yeah, that kind of feels like that? Well, there there, there are a few, and just to go straight back to to Sweden, you know, one of which is a company called Evolution Gaming, which is in the process, which has, uh, and they don't grow very quickly, but they well, actually they are they actually are growing somewhat quickly, but uh, they produce live casino games via video for you know for for casinos all over the world, and. Uh, I don't know if you all have followed this, but uh, in the last two weeks, all of the, you know, the a lot of several Las Vegas casino and casino companies were hacked and they paid oh, yeah. tens of millions of dollars yeah. to get it. My, my brother-in-law lives in Las Vegas and he's, he sent me a very funny slash sad picture of, uh, of the giant marquee in front of the, uh, in front of the Cosmopolitan uh, casino. And it had, and it had the, um, the windows, the Microsoft windows, Hey, do you want to restart your system? Right? Like on the marquee, like you have to, like, have to take the mouse over and hit, you know, and, and, and hit refresh. So, so, uh, these, these companies are actually looking for ways to run gaming in a, you know, in a remote way that doesn't increase their own potential for, you know, vulnerability. And so, Evolution Gaming has done that. It's mm. centralized and it is incredibly profitable for for their customers. So the customers are are, are delighted. And you look out at uh, you know what what they provide, and it's really limited based on Evolution's capacity to train dealers in the in this type of format to you know to to get the infrastructure set up and nobody's going after them. I mean, there are, there is almost no one. I mean, you see these, these small cap companies and they, they say, well, yeah, we're going to go and try and uh, try and compete with, with, uh, with evolution. And I'm like, you're doomed, right? You're absolutely doomed <laughs> because it's a, it's a scale business. And the bigger the scale gets, the more profitable this, this company becomes. Okay. I like that. Uh, looking ahead, then, are there any trends right now that you're particularly bullish on, or conversely, are there any ones that you're very cautious about? Uh, I would say that the one that people have uh, people have latched onto uh, is is AI in particular. Mm -hmm. I think there's a there's a huge amount of 
frothiness around AI. We, you know, we were kind of tracking the number of companies, the types of companies that were were mentioning, uh, you know, that they're you know, that they are moving into AI and it was, you know, well, I mean, Domino's is, you know, is, is basically a, you know, a, a tech company, but they're getting into that into in, in a very big way. And I'm not sure that, that we as investors understand yet. And I don't want to make this sound dismissive because obviously it's something to be learned and we will all learn. But when you're talking about artificial intelligence, what you might be talking about is not a competition enhancer, but a load leveler. I mean, something where if everybody has access to the same technology, what is your edge? Mm-hmm. Like, what mm-hmm. edge do you have? So yeah. we don't know what the best technology is. We don't know what the implications of it are. And we don't really know what companies are going to gain by deploying it. But at the same time, we do know that there are going to be these things, right? Like I am, I am, I am very, very interested in the companies that have big costs in, in, uh, customer service, particularly in an online format, what artificial intelligence is going to bring to them. I think it is going to make Mercado Libre's cost of, you know, cost uh, SGNA their you know their employment costs much lower and coupon and Amazon and and any company that really operates in a uh, in an online environment as a retailer I think that they are about to benefit in a really really big way Domino's pizzas is is another one whereas the SaaS companies and I know the Molly fool has a has a number of uh, recommendations in software as a service, I think that they're going to struggle competing against a lot of the uh, uh, against artificial intelligence companies that are um, that are trying to service provide to take costs out of their supply of of their customers. Uh, This is a really, really big uh, potential risk for them. It's like every new technology, whether it was the the. A stone axe two million years ago, or the loom, where the Luddites are, we're not taking this on, we got to, whatever it is, weave our, our textiles in the old fashioned way, right through to the internet. For me, AI today feels a little bit like the internet in the late 90s, where we were, you know, we knew something big was happening. But beside Amazon, there were like 30 other uh, apparitions. They were just non-business yeah. businesses. And it feels exactly as you said right now that uh, AI is sponsoring a lot of conversation, but it really is just the new tool that you need to adopt into your business model to take costs out or to keep up with the other guys. And I think in our own industry, we have, um, we'd be foolish to ignore AI because if you think of stock graphs and data feeds from the exchanges from FactSet. They're just a lovely history book. And then there's one slice of it that's today. It's the filter. We can look at the market as it is this moment in time. But in order to, I suppose, take all the learnings from this vast amount of data and extrapolate something with the learnings of the great, we can use these tools. But really, that's uh, that's where we're at today. And, and I think it'd be foolish for us to not at least start to dip our toes in and, and build something around it. I think that's exactly right. I think if you're going to invest in AI as a as an individual investor, you have to give yourself the grace to know what you don't know. And we always oh, talk yeah. about one of the most important things that you can do as an investor is to keep a journal, particularly around when you are deciding to make a transaction in a company. And and one of the most important things that you can do is just write down before you trade, like this is why I'm buying this the, the, this company. Right. Hmm. In AI, I think that probably if you make if you make 20 investments, you're going to be wrong on 19 of them. That's the Amazon. That's the Amazon lesson. And you have to give yourself the grace of understanding the game that you're playing. If I want to be invested in AI, I am going to go across the board. And think of maybe those 20, uh, somehow I'm married on 20 companies, you can invest in all of them, but mm-hmm. recognize that you're making that decision as a basket and the companies that will end up winning will become a larger and larger part of your portfolio. But I think so many times people who invest are interested in their hit rate 
They're like, oh, I invested in that company and it went down. It turns out I'm an idiot. When in actuality, if you are playing a game where you are attempting to invest in an eventual winner in a, in, in a segment of the market that we don't know that much about, but is going to be a competitive knife fight, I think you have to give yourself the grace that you're going to be wrong a huge number of times, but that will be, if you've done it correctly, that will be um, solved by the one Mm. 50 bagger, 100 bagger that you end up with in the mix. Here, here. I mean, six months ago, uh, it was Mike who said to me, we should not start to produce a stream of businesses stock recommendations because they're in ai because even the people inside the business aren't quite sure how it's going you know it feels like you know cutting edge pharma or biotech it's kind of even the guys in white coats are thinking well i really hope this works out because if it doesn't we've kind of bet the farm on it um and you know you're looking at a business like nvidia which clearly that horse has bolted i'm sure it's got a few laps left in it but when we're talking in the age of the trillion dollar winner and then all these other businesses that are weaving ai into what they do it feels like it's bifurcated somewhat so for us and my wall street we're now using ai to just analyze every type of business so Mm -hmm. it might tell us to buy a boat manufacturer as opposed to a chip maker you know yeah yeah, and, and, and NVIDIA is such an interesting case. Uh, it was a company, if you go back and you look at uh, the chart for NVIDIA, and, and we use something here all the time called drawdown charts. And the drawdown chart basically shows you what NVIDIA's price is in a time series as a percentage of its all-time high at the time. And with NVIDIA, there was a 13-year period in which it didn't recross its all-time high from like 1998. 13 years in which you would have been been invested in NVIDIA. And the best you could have done was nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so these types of winners, you look back now and you're like, ah, NVIDIA was obvious. NVIDIA was a hall of horrors for investors for a long, long time. But at the same time, it's just ticking along and developing in a way that not even Jensen Wong at NVIDIA necessarily knew what the outcome was going to be. Like he didn't know that someone was going to invent, invent crypto. And it turns out that the best, you know, the, the, the best processors to mine crypto was NVIDIA. He didn't know that AI was going to come out and, and it turns Mm. out that the NVIDIA processors are really, 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 good for AI. He just knew that if we built the best graphics processors we mm. can, the market is going to show up. It's amazing. And what you said, this hall of horrors has, it's the, the autobiography of Apple, Microsoft, Nike. I mean, these stocks that we all look in the rear view mirror now and go, oh, I should have seen it. And like, I knew this was going to happen. Well, you had 16, 20, 25 years to get in there when it was just a couple of cents per share. And I think we're looking, you know, that's the world we're in. And I think the number one attribute that you and Mike and I uh, value the most is patience. You know, you you have to because we don't actually have what I would describe as an analytical edge. Right. Mm-hmm. Whenever I see the, a stock price and whenever whenever I start analyzing a company, my first, second and third instinct is to say the market has it right. And, and, and a lot of times people people hate hearing that from you. Like, hey, here's a stock idea. Uh, you know, it's possible that this will return zero. Like what fun is that? Right. Like, but yeah. but, but at the same time. The market is the market is really pretty good at figuring out what 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 companies are worth. And so time is what you have, right? Like if you if you if you focus on companies that are doing something that you think eventually will be something something big, you've got to give yourself the grace that the stock market probably isn't going to recognize it right away and it's really hard for us because you know we've taken tests our entire lives our entire childhood we took we we took tests and the teacher would grade it and give it back and like you get a mark right Mm. and it's it's either it's it's instant feedback yeah the stock market owes you no feedback whatsoever not not soon not ever and Mm. it's it's i think that if there's one thing that people should take away is that for the most part, 
the stock market is right. But where it is wrong is that the market in general is impatient. And that the fancy term that we sometimes drop on people when we want to sound smart is time arbitrage. You know, that we that that if if analysts are saying, well, the 12 month view is this, your best thing that you can do is say, all right, I'm going to start thinking about what this company is going to look like three years from now. Like if I jump into the DeLorean and I go back to the future and I jump out three years from now, what is this company doing and why? Hmm. And it's hard, you know, and, and, and in some ways it feels like a dumb exercise, but I really think it's the most important thing that people can do. Bill, I could talk to you all day, as could Mike, but rather than do that, let's talk in person. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person. Uh, and that date again for our listeners is Friday, 17th of November. We're going to focus on finding outstanding investments for 2024, 2025, and so on. And for the first time, we've decided to offer a very limited number of tickets to non-Horizon members, 149 euro for a ticket two tickets for $249, or euro, I should say, open bar, food is on us, and the biggest network uh, event of its type on this side of the Atlantic. And better still, if you want to subscribe to Horizon afterwards, we'll credit the value of your ticket. So click on the link in the show notes right now to secure just one of a handful of tickets for non-Horizon members and join us on the night for more of these chats and laughs and smart investing insights. And we'll have to, I guess, sober yourself and Chris up for the show, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll behave. <laughs> I cannot wait to uh, to, to, to come and, uh, and, and to see you. It was a wonderful event last year. And I'm just, I'm honored to be, uh, to be invited back. And hopefully I, 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 I will return the, you know, return the confidence because, uh, you know, I think, I think what you all do at my wall street is amazing. You've definitely helped so many people and, you know, I, I really just honored to, uh, to come and play a part in November. Well, Bill, the honor is entirely ours. Um, Mike, Bill, Mike, you usually wrap up being as I'm the talker. <laughs> Give it a go. No, I'm looking forward to what you come up with to close this Bill, <laughs> thank you for joining us here today. Mike, see you later. Well, I just want to give a quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Uh, I used to think of Vodafone Business as only a reliable provider of mobile and broadband needs, but they're really stepping up to help Irish businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world. So they now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. More recently, Vodafone have launched their vHub digital advisory service. With its new service, Irish businesses of all sizes can get free one-to-one -one digital support and advice tailored to their business by simply booking a call with one of the vHub digital experts on the Vodafone business website. Search Vodafone vHub for more information. Mm -hmm.